Hello, and welcome to Live Like the World is Dying, a podcast that explores life when it feels like the end times. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy. This week, I'm talking to Zoe Martinez, an anarchist who works in public health in the UK, about the coronavirus. We talk about what self-isolation means and what it doesn't mean, uh, about who the coronavirus is impacting and who self-isolation impacts, and we talk about why you shouldn't freak out, but how you can work to prepare yourself by building resilient communities. I'll get right into it and let them speak for themselves. Thanks for listening. So welcome to the sort of surprise second episode of Live Like the World is Dying. I was going to wait another week before I put out an episode, but it sure seems like some stuff is happening in the world right now that needs to be addressed. So if you could, could you introduce yourself with whatever name and pronoun that you would prefer, and then maybe sort of your affiliation, both like politically and also how you're related to public health? Yep, sure. So uh, my name is Zoe Martinez. Uh, I would prefer they, them, please. I am currently working in the UK. Um, My politics are very left, um, anarchist by preference. um, And I'm in the very interesting position at the moment of considering myself to be a leftist anarchist working in uh, the kind of public health system of a country that has a right right wing government um, and also working within an enormous unwieldy bureaucracy and kind of feeling the weight of that all around me. Um, In terms of the public health side of things, uh, the job that I do at the moment is healthcare planning, specifically with relation to uh, critical care, intensive care. So as I'm sure you can understand, we're getting a lot of calls at the moment to look at the way that coronavirus is going to be impacting on people becoming critically unwell and how they might need to be hospitalized for that. Okay. Um Can you start by talking somewhat briefly about what coronavirus is and isn't and kind of what's going on? Yeah, sure. Um, So uh, coronavirus or Wuhan novel coronavirus, as it started out being known, uh, you may see it now referred to as well as COVID-19, is a new virus that has uh, emerged in uh, China. It's... uh, a kind of respiratory illness. So it's an illness that tends to affect the upper respiratory tract. So it would affect your throat, your nose, can then go down and settle on your chest. And some of the the symptoms that are being reported will be uh, shortness of breath, difficulty breathing, um, a persistent cough, and also some of the other symptoms then being the kind of feverish symptoms of aches and pains, chills, high temperature. Um, It is uh, known as novel coronavirus because it was only discovered uh, earlier this year or possibly towards the end of last year, actually. Um, And it is something that has apparently emerged in a crossover uh, between other animals and humans. So it kind of jumped the uh, the boundary between animal to animal infection to animal to human infection and is now being transmitted from human to human. Okay. Um, 
So the important question is, should everyone freak out about this? <laughs> That's a very good question. Um, I think the simple answer to that is no. Um, if you were not freaking out about flu, uh, then you probably don't need to freak out any more about this. And in fact, given the kinds of measures that are being put in place at the moment to try and contain the illness, um, I think you could probably freak out about this a little less. Um, generally speaking, for around about 75% of the people who contract this illness, um, it's like a bad cold. It is, it's makes you feel crappy. It will feel like you just want to curl up in bed. Um, but for the most part, it's not going to cause any severe problems. It's about 25% of people who will go on to develop some kind of severe symptoms or complications. Um, and the severe symptoms and complications are usually going to be in the same kind of groups that you would see complications for another kind of illness like this, like flu. So it would be people who have got other chronic conditions uh, like um, kind of chest problems, heart problems, diabetes, um, but also significantly older people whose health is more fragile um, and also very young children. Okay. Um, so... One of the main ideas of this podcast, it's a sort of, you know, leftist and anarchist prepper podcast in some ways, um, basically about how we cope with what feels like the end times uh, to some of us. Um, yeah. What can, so this kind of came as a, I mean, it's only been in the past month or so that this has been talked about. Uh, what can people do about this either personally or on a community level? Um, I think that it's um, interesting looking at, at some of the guidance that's coming out, particularly in terms of sort of self-quarantining and self-isolating. Mm -hmm. um, so in practical terms, what that generally tends to mean is you stay in your home, you don't go to work or to school, um, you try to stay off public transportation, you try to avoid ha having people over to your home. Um, of course, this is going to have an impact on... Um, people who are trying to exist in a sort of low wage economy, sometimes staying in your home is not going to be practical. Mm -hmm. uh, staying off public transportation isn't going to be practical. Um, I think that at a, at a personal level, some of the things that people can be doing is to try and be vigilant in the same way as you would be for any other kind of ill health problem. Um, so if you see somebody coughing and spluttering and sneezing, you probably just want to give them a bit of a wide berth. Um, if one of the things that would probably be advised for a wider spread outbreak, and this may come in the, the kind of coming weeks or months, is staying away from places where there are large gatherings of people. So, you know, clubs, bars, big rallies, you know, act, you know, thinking particularly about the activist community. If you've got some mm -hmm. kind of activist activity coming up, then you might want to rethink some of that and try and plan that around making sure that you're not having a big gathering of people together. Um, the basic common sense stuff here is to just practice the same kind of good hygiene that you would do normally. If you're going to cough or sneeze, you know, do it into a tissue or into the crook of your elbow, make sure you're washing your hands regularly. Um, 
don't get up in the space of somebody who seems to be sick is probably the best thing that you can do. Um, one of the other things that kind of came to mind as well, because the whole thing around self-isolating, um, it made me think a little bit of the um, of the outbreak that we had in England of um, of the plague, the bubonic plague, mm-hmm. um, where there was a, a known village in um, in the middle of Eng- right smack bang in the middle of England that had an outbreak of plague. Wait, recently? Uh, one of the Oh God, no! <laughs> Sorry. So no, this was this was back at the time when oh, okay. the plague was rife, okay, <laughs> um, and was spread incredibly widely. And for um, some reason, there was somebody within the village who went, "We should have no contact with people outside our village." But obviously, we're going to be reliant on them for supplying us whilst people in the village are sick. Mm-hmm. And what they were doing was they were putting money wrapped up in fabric that had been soaked in vinegar at the border of the village and the outside villagers were coming in and leaving food so that they could take it back in Mm -hmm. so one of the things that they're saying about self-isolating is asking friends asking family members to bring things to your home and you know we are kind of in a more technological age we can kind of go hey i'll paypal you some money can you please collect me some groceries and leave them on the doorstep Mm -hmm. um so kind of calling on your support networks if you have them building those support networks to make sure that you are supported that you you can support the people in your community so that if this does start to spread more widely we know that we've got those networks in place and we can rely upon each other but someone's still delivering the food in that sense aren't they then not self-isolating like the person who has to go to the grocery store is it is that like the job for the more healthy person or something like that, that- yeah, that would be the job for the more healthy person. So being able to get a, a message out via, you know, some kind of text-based means or calling your friends and saying, could you stop by the grocery store and pick me some stuff up and then literally knock my door to let me know it's there and leave mm-hmm. um, means that you can pick those things up without exposing anybody else. If you think that, you know, if you're either sick or you think that you may be at risk, mm-hmm. Um will help to support you so that you're not basically trying to tough out what is likely to be quite an unpleasant illness in your own home without any support, but you're also not exposing anybody else to the risk of infection as well. Okay. Because I, you know, last night was actually the first time I started really reading articles that didn't seem like scaremongering about um this sort of stay at home model, the like social isolation model of how we as a community deal with um, a disease. And what's funny to me is that it goes against most of what I understand about um, disaster and like apocalyptic survival in general. Like I I generally Mm. am against the sort of bunker mentality, but it's interesting when you have this really specific threat model of, of, of illness where that suddenly becomes a useful thing. But when I was talking to my friend about this last night, one of the things that really came up was, you know, he was uh, talking about how he's planning on self-isolating soon, uh, just kind of because he's reading these articles about how in order to, and you maybe know more about this, and if you could could explain it, I'd appreciate it. The like, I think it's called the R0 or the R0 um, number, the like number of people who get infected the number of yeah. people that any given infected person infect and how we can uh, like flatten out the curve to try and minimize harm. 
do do you know a bit more about that or want to talk about that sure so um the the kind of self-isolation and quarantining seems to have done quite a lot to kind of flatten that curve out so when the reports first started coming out of the wuhan province in china it was kind of startling the figures in that they seemed to be doubling every 24 hours so you know you had what they would call patient zero mm-hmm. um the following day they had two people that they'd been in contact with who had become infected and then you had double that number and on until they kind of got to the point of realizing that this was a highly infectious illness and they needed to do something to try and contain the spread mm-hmm. we're now looking at something that doesn't appear to be anywhere near that bad um so just talking about the uk specifically we've repatriated two people uh into scotland who were put into immediate sort of quarantine and isolation um we now have 15 confirmed cases in the uk and that's been over the entire duration of the 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 kind of virus spread and so far we haven't had any um kind of within the country person-to-person transmission so all of the cases that we've had in this country have been people who have come back from a country that has already had um Mm. a spread of the infection so either you know kind of east asia or um now we're looking at sort of northern Italy is one of the areas that seems to be having the infection. Mm-hmm. Um, so sci- self-isolating does seem to be a useful way to kind of reduce the spread. Mm-hmm. Um, but it seems to be something that is more beneficial if you think you may be at risk of transmitting the illness rather than as a kind of precautionary measure against contracting it. You know, you don't basically need to take to your home and batten down the hat is in case you get it i think that the model here is that if you think you may be at risk of having been exposed that's when you kind of take yourself out of circulation so it's sort of almost like a writ large version of the thing about face masks you know um everything i've been reading about face masks say the face masks are far less to keep you from catching a disease and far more for keeping you from spreading a disease very much so. So the reason why um, you would see, you know, a physician or somebody using a face mask in a hospital is to stop them from infecting a patient that has open wounds, for example, by, mm-hmm. you know, accidentally sneezing on them or breathing on them or whatever. Um there is one type of face mask which tends to be used in uh, hospital settings, particularly for Uh, clinical staff who are caring for patients that they know have an infectious illness it's called uh, a um, it's a it's called an ffp3 mask so it's a particular kind of very close fitting respirator mask which is thought to help to reduce the chances of breathing in somebody else's infected secretions in something that's thought to be airborne um could you say that number again again? you the your voice went robot Okay, it's um, an FFP3. FFP3. Yeah, Great. so it's a particular kind of face mask. Um, you can buy them on on the internet if you want to. Um, but the important thing with those is that if you just buy one and have it shipped to you, um, you need to make sure that it is a proper fit on your face if you just buy one and put it on just 
as it comes. Mm -hmm. It's still not going to be making the kind of air seal that it needs to in order to keep everything out that you would want to be kept out. And you need to change them pretty regularly as well. Um, So the big thing about face masks really is, you know, if you think that you may be infected and you have no choice but to go outside, then stick on your face mask to try and stop from passing it on to somebody else rather than as a preventative from you getting the illness. Okay. So you would say that self-isolation is not about everyone listening to this podcast should now go and not leave their house for the next two months. You're saying that maybe preparing to be able to do that in case you either are more at risk yourself or are at risk of spreading it? Yes, absolutely. So, um, you know, the kind of preparations that you, I mean, they're saying that generally speaking, if you think that you may have been exposed to the illness and you may be at at a risk of developing it yourself, Mm -hmm. you should be looking at isolating yourself for 14 days after exposure or potential exposure. So, having some things in your home to keep you going for 14 days if you feel as though you don't want to go out for that time in case you become a risk mm-hmm. would probably be a useful thing to do. Um, I think as well that, you know, one of the things that that's struck me about the kind of um, the rhetoric about staying in your home and, and self-isolating is that we're in a you know we're in quite a fragmented society these days mm-hmm. the idea of having friends or family members who can run errands for you or collect your groceries or medications um it's going to be you know people of color queer, queer people who are isolated from their communities um you know disabled people may struggle with that kind of social backup of having people to support them. Um, So I think if people wanted to be doing anything for the next two months, it might be organizing in their communities to say, you know, just check in on the people who live around them and go, hey, do you need some kind of support? Here's my number. If you find yourself in this position, I'm a person you can call on and making sure that you have those numbers in your phone as well so that if you find yourself in that position, you know that there are people who can support you. Okay. So that's actually, it's interesting because that ties into something that um, hopefully I'll be talking about more on the show with people is building kind of resiliency networks um, Mm. with neighbors and with community, however you end up defining community. Um, How is the, well, so, okay. So it's interesting because then like in the U S you have, I don't know how it is in the UK. The U S has this tendency to view the rest of the developed world as sort of utopian in its, um, health uh care access to health care yeah. you know like um uh i mean i remember having a conversation with a friend of mine who is sort of independently wealthy uh where he was very frustrated with another friend for going to work while sick because it was you know wildly irresponsible to put other people at risk but my other friend can't not go to work for two weeks just because he has a terrible illness that's contagious you know? Um, and I don't know, there's been a lot of conversation happening about how this, the coronavirus and, uh, governmental response is really showing a lot of the flaws, at least in capitalism, if not in sort of capitalist government. And I'm wondering, you might have a different position coming from the UK, um, or a different perspective, but I'm curious. Um, I mean, I think that, um, 
I think that certainly taking sick days is slightly more normalized in the UK than it might be in the US particularly. But even then, um, according to the kind of UK benefits system for, um, you know, payment of sickness benefits, um, you have to have been sick, uh, unpaid for three days before <laughs> the kind of basic level of sickness pay would kick in. And at mm -hmm. that point, it's going to be something equivalent to about $40 a day. Um, so you're not looking at going, Oh, it's all right. I can, I can take a, a whole bunch of sick time and I'm going to be reimbursed handsomely and I can just sit at home. It's, you know, it, it doesn't work like that in this country, but even less so from what I can tell in the U S mm -hmm. um, and I'm thinking particularly, you know, for people who are dependent on working in the service, industries and particularly places where you know a significant amount of the income that they make is reliant on tips for example mm -hmm. you know trying to drag yourself through an average work day is pretty difficult trying to drag yourself through a work day and be pleasing enough to the general public to attract tips when you're feeling awful is you know it's not a great prospect really mm -hmm. um but quite aside from that you know it is I think that that is where um, the U.S. in particular, but I think a lot of other areas of the kind of Western industrialized world are going to see the problems here is people who are saying, yeah, it's all very well for you to tell me to stay at home for 14 days if I've been exposed, but I'm going to lose my house if I do that. Right. Um, and, you know, that is going to be a genuine problem. Yeah, I mean, I, I think about... Uh, everything I've read says that the the death toll of this particular illness um, seems to be at around like two percent overall. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I know that probably myself and most of the people in my sort of immediate circles would have to make the decision of taking an increased chance of having a two percent chance of dying over. Mm -hmm losing their jobs, losing, you know, their housing, losing their ability to survive, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think that there's a fatalism, at least in the circles that I'm in where everyone, and maybe we, we say this because, you know, I'm in my late thirties, but I'm, I'm, and I'm healthy, um, uh, by most standards. So there's a kind of, there's a fatalism of like, well, I'll probably get it and I'll probably get over it, you know? Mm. Um, and it's actually only this kind of flattening the curve mentality and this uh, kind of not herd immunity, but like this, this concept of by avoiding getting it, I can avoid passing it to people who are, are more at risk is actually the first yeah. time that I've considered taking it seriously i mean i took it yeah. seriously but i i took it seriously as this like well apparently my chance of dying this year went up from about one percent to about two percent you know yeah um but now i have to think about kind of um community responsibility as relates to it yeah and i think that's the that's the difficult thing here is that you know you have a 
largely Western capitalist society mm-hmm. that has told us to privilege individuality and, you know, I've got mine, so I'm okay. And then is suddenly flipping that on its head at a time of public health emergency, for want of a better word, or higher risk, mm-hmm. and saying, now you have to privilege the community and considering what is best for the people around you over your own needs to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a pretty big flip in not very much time for people to have been told, well, you can't expect to be responsible for anybody other than yourself and you can't expect anybody else to be responsible for you to then suddenly be told you are potentially risking other people's lives by going to work when you're sick, even though you know that you're not going to be able to meet rent payment if you don't. Right. So yeah, that's um, that's where I kind of see this into, I mean, quite aside from the kind of fragmented community side of things, you know, the other aspects of that is that, except in sort of small pockets of local organization and you know organization along the lines of political identity or you know personal identity there doesn't feel as though there is that greater sense of community so suddenly asking people to take responsibility for the people around them when they've always been told that they don't need to be responsible for anybody around them and nobody is responsible for them it's it's quite a big mental leap to make yeah yeah, I mean it's 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 fascinating to me because I think we're living at this time right now even before adding disease vectors just thinking about climate change and refugee crises that we're being forced to either become nationalist or internationalist like the center is like no longer really a viable option and I think that people are choosing between a like sort of nationwide bunker mentality and like erecting walls or leaving unions or whatever um, to use yeah. my country and your country as examples uh, yeah. versus um, an internationalist. Let's all pull together and try and stop this. Um, and it's, I mean, I clearly have a position on this. I'm clearly on the side of internationalism. And I think mm. that the, the flaws of nationalism are going to become more and more clear in, in the coming years this health crisis actually seems like one of those times um, where, yeah, where this, this I've got mine, fuck you mentality is like flawed and not going to work. And um, I keep thinking about, this is sort of a tangent, but for the past couple of days, I've been like obsessively thinking about the mask of the red death, uh, the Edgar Allan Poe story, okay. you know, where they yeah. like, all of the rich people go hide in a castle to get away from a disease. And then they're like, eh, didn't work. Yeah. Yup. I mean, the thing is at the end of the day, even all of the rich people in their castles need somebody to bring them food and, you know, keep them going. And it is going to be those people who cannot afford to not do that, who Mm -hmm. are going to bring the disease to the rich people who thought they'd escaped. Yeah. Um, So, yeah. I think the the interesting thing about the you know the kind of nationalism versus internationalism thing, um, you know, I've been reading some of the reports from 
what's been happening at the US borders, for example, where they're saying, you know, well, you look a bit Asian, so maybe we shouldn't let you into the country, even though you've actually just been from, you know, Washington to Seattle and, mm-hmm. you know, you, you've lived here all your life. Um but that that kind of idea of using an international border to prevent the spread of an illness from one place to another, um, actually, if we were working better as locally organised communities, we would be able to have the kind of resilience that you were talking about to say, one of our number is sick, they can't afford to be doing stuff right now, they're going to isolate. We're going to make sure that they've got all of the stuff that they need until they're ready to re-emerge in, into society. And mm-hmm. hopefully that will contain the illness. And if it doesn't and somebody else gets it, then it's their turn for all of us to care for them. Mm-hmm. Um, rather than just kind of going, okay, well, something scary happened, so we're going to pull up the drawbridge and nobody else can come in. And we're going to side-eye everybody who looks like they might have a sniffle or like they might come from a country that we read as being a problem. Right. Um, That just doesn't seem to make sense to me. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about, so you work with large institutions rather than at the community level. And you, you mentioned in your introduction that it's sometimes frustrating to deal with these large bureaucracies. Um, Can you talk about, public health sort of writ large on a on a governmental level and what's yeah. been working and what's not been working yeah so i think that it's interesting in some ways so if you look at the the kind of clinical aspects of this so the people who are doing the surveillance hands on doing the testing of samples and um sharing that information um, looking at um, prevalence and incidence and spread and how this thing is growing, um, looking at developing guidance for how people should be dealing with this, whether it's in the community or if it's in uh, like a hospital setting. I think that's where you start to see some of the real benefits of internationalism. Mm-hmm. So some of the guidance that I've been looking at in my small area of the world um, has been developed very locally by people who work around me. Some of it is developed at a UK-wide level. Some of it is um, kind of European. Some of it is World Health Organization. And this is where you have, you know, clinical people who have contacts across international boundaries who are working together and supporting each other to get the information out there and you know making sure that as much good information is circulated as possible then you look at the organizational side of things mm-hmm. and you're trying to deal through governments and government agencies um who are looking at this from the perspective of um quite often minimizing risk to politicians rather than minimizing <laughs> risk to populations. Mm-hmm. Um, I was reading something a couple of days ago about how uh, some, I can't remember which um, 
kind of committee it was now that was taking some kind of presentation on this in the US where they were saying, don't worry, it's not going to have a big effect on um, on people's stocks or <laughs> on investments. It's all going to be fine. You will keep all of your money. Don't worry. Yeah. Um, and it feels as though, you know, I agree that we should be managing people's fears around um how much of a risk this is and how big of a problem it's going to be for people but not for the purposes of trying to make the politicians look good right um and for, for keeping the stock values level and all of that kind of thing yeah i'd rather keep my elderly family and not money yes please that would be good <laughs> Um, but you also have the situation and, you know, I'm just looking at this within UK, which is a relatively small, you know, area of, of the world. And even across the UK devolved nations, so England, Scotland, Wales specifically, are the ones that I tend to have most dealings with. If something comes out of um, the English Department of Health, it then has to go into a process of going into the Welsh government for them to say, okay, well, do we agree with this? And is it Welsh enough? And should we be thinking about doing our own research on this? And does it make us look good? And should we be using it? So rather than just going through the process of going, okay, these people who are learned and know things have issued this information we should just run with it right mm -hmm. they then have to go through a process of deciding whether or not from an organizational and political perspective that feels like the right thing to do in order to serve their kind of political paymasters mm -hmm. um, and you know decision making in hierarchical organizations is tortuous on a grand scale <laughs> um, and just thinking about it from, you know, I was exchanging emails with a colleague of mine who works in a government agency and saying, hey, so you said that because in intensive care, we may be taking on more patients and we need to make sure that we can increase our capacity. You said that there might be some money available so that people can buy equipment so that they can equip those extra beds so that we're ready to be there and respond if this 25% of the infected population end up coming into hospital. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, that was about a week and a half ago and I've not heard anything since. And that will probably have to go through some subcommittee of a committee that has to make a decision that is scrutinized by 15 people. And then I will have to wait for the money to be issued. And so it, that kind of bureaucracy sort of slows down being able to do anything practical in order mm -hmm. to prepare for the inevitable consequences of if this thing goes big. Right. Whereas you're saying basically at the local level, you all have a good sense of what you need and mm. you could probably say, this is what we need. Just give us the resources. But yeah. instead it's has to be kind of handed down upon from high. Yeah. So I think it would be fair to say that it's kind of the middle tier that mm -hmm. is the problem. So mm -hmm. you have at a local <laughs> level, you have local communities who are going, this is what we need. Mm -hmm. At an international level, you have people who are 
you know, working in research and working with the data who are saying this is what we've learned and this is what we think is going to happen. Mm -hmm. And in the middle, you have a bunch of people who are chewing on the ends of their pens, wondering what they should do about this and trying to put it through some kind of a committee process. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I've been trying to figure out as I read articles and things about this, to what degree, you know, like in the US, we're having this problem where um, apparently the the tests that we've developed to test for this particular coronavirus mm-hmm. are not particularly accurate. Um, mm-hmm. And so all of the testing is happening in like one place in Atlanta nationwide yeah. and all the ones that are being instituted elsewhere are like fallible. And it it's interesting to me because I, I'm like, I'm trying to figure out why we're replicating this work. Like why does the U S have to develop its own tests? You know, it's, it's a, yeah. um, yeah, I don't know. It 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 seems staggeringly yeah. stupid to watch people cling to institutions that are it's the same with climate change where I'm like watching people cling to institutions that are literally going to murder the entire world. And I don't know. Yeah, no, it is crazy. And I think that in some senses I think there is some kind of institutionalized um, sort of psychological need to control the uncontrollable. Mm-hmm. You know, we kind of know that we've been waiting for a major um, outbreak of some kind of an infectious illness for really quite some time. We had a pandemic of influenza in 2009, 2010, um, that even though it severely tested you know the the ability of services to deal with that it was still you know it wasn't your spanish flu it didn't wipe out millions of people in the population Mm -hmm. so we've been waiting for this to come along for a while and now it looks as though it may be here it feels as though there is this kind of not dealing with what is in front of you which is okay, there's this existential threat. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, well, let's engage in some displacement activities like replicating work that's been done elsewhere so that we can feel as though we're in control of it. Whereas mm-hmm. actually we're not doing anything that is really useful, but it feels like we're busy. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. That's dark and sounds accurate <laughs> to me. <laughs> I mean, it, well, what you're talking about, about the like community level and the international level being the levels that like have a better sense of what's going on than the sort of like national level that, um, mm-hmm. I mean, I have this very strong bias towards looking for things that reaffirm my worldview, uh, but yeah. that certainly reaffirms my worldview as an internationalist <laughs> and an anarchist where I'm like, no, 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 it's yeah. like, we should figure out shit all together or at the community or individual level it's like the little weird nationalist shit that yeah is the mess yeah and it's the it's the kind of you know at a national level it's really weird because you know just thinking about it from a from a uk wide level you're trying mm-hmm. to come up with some kind of st- strategy or plan for um that you can just say okay we're going to implement this across the the whole of the uk and then you go okay well some parts of the uk have a incredibly high density of population Mm -hmm. um 
from UK perspective, you know, we're not talking about Mexico City levels of, of density mm. of population here, but, you know, you've got London on the one hand, and then you've got the Highlands of Scotland on the other hand, um, mm. where you have two completely different sets of challenges where in london you're potentially going to be looking at people falling over each other just trying to exist and potentially infecting each other left right and center because they literally can't keep out of each other's way mm-hmm. whereas if you're looking at the north of scotland where there's like one house for every 25 miles mm-hmm. your risk there is that you have an older person who is in a really rural isolated location whose um abil- ability to breathe for themselves suddenly goes rapidly Right. downhill and it's going to take four hours for some kind of medical assistance to get to them right um and if you're planning at a community level, the last thing that i would probably say just to sort of go back to the start of what we were talking about at a kind of individual and community level mm-hmm. um i don't think that this is uh, you know this this is going to be an illness it's likely to have a big impact um but I don't think that people need to, you know, hightail it off to their bunkers and hide away until it all goes away. I think that we need to be reasonably prepared, that we need to try and care for each other and our communities as much as we can. Um, and that you just need to kind of take things as they come and respond to that rather than responding to the kind of understandable panic about this unknown thing that is coming over the horizon. Um, Because whilst it may be, you know, unpleasant and have a big impact, I don't think that individually it's going to be as bad for as many people as people think it's going to be. Thanks so much for listening. If you like this podcast, please tell people about it. Word of mouth is certainly how I find out about all the podcasts that I listen to. And maybe you have that experience too. So if you want more people to have this information, you um, should tell people to listen to it, especially at the beginning of a new podcast like this. I feel like that's particularly important. And I know I'd be very grateful. I also have another podcast. It's called We Will Remember Freedom. It's a monthly anarchist fiction podcast. And it's short stories that I find by other people that would appeal to an anarchist audience. Then I interview those authors about those stories afterwards. The other, the main way to support this podcast is through my Patreon, uh, which is patreon.com slash Margaret Killjoy. That's my main income. And I'm eternally grateful that I'm able to spend a good chunk of my life working on projects like this. So um, please help me do that if you would like. I think that this podcast will be pretty much weekly and join us next week when I talk to a New York City anarchist and activist about what disaster preparedness means in an urban environment and how maybe actually that might be the safer place to be for most threat models. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks so much.